Welcome to today's episode of Diversity and Inclusion, Revolution or Reform, where we talk all things DNI to ask whether DNI can save us, get us free, or move us towards collective liberation. I'm Connie. And I'm David. Each week on this podcast, we'll get into whether DNI is revolution or reform with guests who are DNI practitioners, activists, organizers, or academics and researchers in the field. We talk strategy, mindsets, growth, learnings, and mistakes, and even some juicy DNI confessions. Because at the end of each day, we're all humans just trying to do our best. Welcome to this week's episode of Diversity and Inclusion, Revolution or Reform. Today, I'm so, so excited about our guest, Xavier Ramey. He is the CEO of Justice Informed, a social impact consulting firm based in Chicago, Illinois. He's an award-winning social strategist, noted public speaker, and conflict mediator, among so many other things. But I first ran into Xavier when he came and spoke in one of my uh, graduate school classes, talking about how his life uh, from the west side of Chicago, moving into spaces at the University of Chicago, through lots of different professional spaces, came in contrast with the things that he was seeing on the streets and how he's developed uh, all of these tools and strategies for bringing justice and equity to the forefront of all of those spaces. Since that one conversation in that grad school class, uh, he's been so gracious in keeping in touch over the years. I've given him his flowers almost every time I've spoken with him, but uh, I'll do this up front instead of at the end of our conversation. Uh, as he is constructed, uh, justice informed over the last five years. He's someone that I've looked to as I've built uh, Amplifier J as an inspiration, saying like, you know, you can do this. So Xavier, we're going to talk about so many of those things over the next little bit. But thank you so much for being here today. Good to see you. Good to be in space with you. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Oh man, it's so good to be seen by you as well. Uh, we always start here on this podcast by asking our guests to share their lineage, how they got started in this work. So uh, wherever you want to start, um, take it away. So like you said, you know, I come by way of the city of Chicago. Chicago is a city that you either grow because of or in spite of as a person of color. And I think that I've had the experience of both. I've grown because of the city I was born into. I've also grown in spite of my city and, and how it has tried to either contain control or stop me. I come from a family of community-minded folks. We are originally from the South, like a lot of the Black folks in Chicago came up during the ill-named Great Migration. I hate that. I just hate that term, man. Great Migration. It's like we're wildebeest. What was so great? I mean, migration, like the great migration, you know, it's just like the wildebeest moving north or something. I don't know. That's a small thing. But my grandfather came up here and settled up around the Chicago area. Grandma was a preacher. Dad was a community activist and an organizer, worked a lot in community economic development. And I grew up really kind of running behind him. You know, I was his note taker in the room when he was at city council meetings. I was the one who, when I got older and more literate, I would proofread all of his grants he would write. He had his own social impact consulting firm called Sustainable Communities and Associates. I watched him build that. I watched that shutter prematurely and in the space of the hard work of community engagement, but also being a Black man trying to get a contract, we buried him under that company and his incredible vision and ambitions for change here in this country and in, in our city. I started Justice Informed after I left the University of Chicago. I used to be their senior assistant director for social innovation and philanthropy. Long title, man. You know, they had no sense of humor over there. When I applied for that job, I remember I was literally at the interview and I was like, y'all know the acronym for this, this job title is SAD SIP. <laughs> it was like, if you know, I, like you, you have see as a mantra where fun goes to die. 
I didn't know that at that time. So it was just blank stares. But I did that, man. That was just public and private partnerships, uh, building public private partnerships. You know, they hired me because they were like, you've got an eye for perhaps what's next in society. We want someone in house who can bridge the grassroots organizing traditional nonprofit, philanthropic foundation and corporate community um, to think about what are the types of projects and ideas that we as a university need to be considering and then build those projects and bring our faculty, staff and students along to support them. Then before that, man, I was on the I was on the other side and I was a program officer. I was giving away money and uh, for the United Way here in Chicago around their jobs program. And prior to that, it was all about just being steeped and immersed in community with Young Men's Educational Network, traditional direct service nonprofit, working primarily with Black boys, trying to be the intermediary for them with their families, as well as with their schools and and sometimes with the courts and advocating on their behalf and and mentoring and leading them, being kind of big bro for, you know, 100 kids. (laughs) But all of that informed the path with J.I., man. When (sighs) Mike Brown was killed in 2014, me and a couple of friends went to Ferguson and my life changed. And um, it was because I was, I was looking at all the traditional nonprofit mechanisms. I was like, bro, I was poster boy for your like, he came from the hood. He rose from the ashes, a dark black Phoenix simmering and simmering into the, like I was, I was, man, you could have, you could have put my face on a poster. People have been like, now young people pull up your pants because Xavier did like I was that dude. And when I got to Ferguson, man, staring down the barrel of a police gun while we were marching in the dawn of the Black Lives Matter movement, um, and you see the tear gas canisters, you see the rifles, you see the agreements, you know, you know, how, you know, police have jurisdictions, you know, state police don't don't arrest people, city property, city don't go with county, that sort of a thing. And you see you see dozens of police departments in the, in the span of a day come together break down all those divisions like bloods and crips like nah we is a truce we got to fight these people and we were those people i look back at my skill set and my training and i realized that nothing i had inherited nothing that i understood and nothing i was doing could actually stop that and that's when i stopped thinking about reform that was when i i saw the limits of it and i started to think about what does wholesale reimagining and wholesale reconstruction of systems of cultural practice of organizational policy and of uh, community practices really look like and who builds that. And that's when I started doing the work like I'm doing now, that now we've operationalized, turned into a, an actual company where we, we try to push these things out into your everyday, likely somewhat problematic Fortune 500 or small company or startup or nonprofit or found family foundation, you know, those sorts of places. And I'm, I'm happy to be able to lead a team that does this type of work now. Yeah, there's, there's so much in there. And Connie might get mad at me for going a little bit out of order, but you really explicitly talked about, you know, the limits of reform. Uh, one of the ways that we've constructed this conversation is like, is DEI, are DEI efforts revolutionary or are they reform? Uh, especially when we talk about police reform, I think that's a little bit different, but you know, what are the limits of what reform can be when we're talking about justice in a system that is built on white supremacy? Yeah, well, first you have to deal with the the mind and the heart of the people who are hearing the words, right? So one of the questions I ask at every justice-informed interview, for anybody who wants to come to my my company, they, they have to ask answer certain questions that are everyday things that happen to people when they hear words like justice, where they hear words like anti-racism, 
What's the difference between revenge and equity? What's the difference between revenge and justice? Can DEI fundamentally be revolutionary? And I, I just want to say for the, whoever's listening, right, there, there is a strong distinction between revolutionary practices and reformist practices. There are reformist reforms and revolutionary reforms. Revolution has to go to the root of the issue, meaning that you're looking at the underlying causes of harm, as well as the causes of opportunity that, that create the, the experience that people are having and the opportunities that they're either afforded or not afforded. It requires that you assume that there is a deliberate design to society, not that things just happen, that things are tragic, like a hurricane and the loss of homes or the loss of, of life from a, a natural disaster. In order to understand revolutionary practices and, and to really instill within yourself a belief in the power of them, you first have to agree that people are constantly designing society, hard stop. And if we can design for injustice, we can design for justice. If we can design inequity, we can design for equity. But first it requires that you give power to the human hand, you give agency to the human mind, and you give intention to the human heart and give it that level of power so that you deal with it, how it moves. You first have to really step away from saying, well, that's unfortunate, ah, racism. Oh, that's unfortunate. Another Black person was killed by police. It's just so tragic. You move into the space of being comfortable with saying, look what we've designed. Now, where do I fit in that? What have I done to either prevent that or what have I done to create that? It requires you to understand and own your power. But also, secondarily, other than just this question around power, it requires that you presuppose yourself into community. Revolutionary practices and engagement requires that you believe you're not an island. You don't exist alone, right? And that harm is something that needs to be addressed with a level of urgency. Usually when people talk about reform, it's because there's a desire to continue harm for some period of time to in some way hold often the fears or fragilities of people who currently have power. When we talk about something like police reform, which I will acknowledge is very, very polarizing, and, and if anybody wants to dig into that, feel free, hit us up. But I'll just say to, to put a, a short cap on it, there's a difference between safety and security. If you don't know that difference, dig into that difference. Security happens with a gun. Safety happens through relationships. Think about the difference. Revolution requires we look at the relationships that presuppose the need for security, including things like land rights, including things like access to facilities, including things like the means of production to your economic production and these sorts of things. If you don't get that, then we got a long way to go with learning before we can talk about what's the strategy. Reformist reforms are about changing the effects of things rather than the causes of things, right? So for instance, in the police reform conversation, it's like a reformist reform would be like, well, we're going to you know, use body cameras you know, versus change how we understand transparency and accountability for police misconduct. Different starting lines. I do think the DEI is like 90% reform. I actually think that the only thing that could even be revolutionary in the work of DEI is the work of equity. But that is only where equity extends to acknowledge and empower the work of anti-racism. Otherwise, most equity initiatives that I've ever seen are exactly that. They are an initiative. They are not a lens through which a company or an organization sees their commitment to the broader world versus their commitment to their internal workforces or their internal stakeholders. Right. You know, I met you in 2015, I believe it was. So a year after you had gone to Ferguson, 
and I think it was in the wake of Freedom Square, for those of you who know Chicago organizing history, uh, I'll just let you Google that and uh, learn about the Let Us Breathe Collective that came out of that and all the things that happened there. But, you know, you had started to think about some of these things. And in some ways, uh, people started to paint you publicly or, you know, the profile you gained was like as Xavier, the DEI guy, but you've been doing so many more different things that are getting to the root that don't get centered so much as far as like corporate uh, social responsibility, community engagement, like you were just speaking to. I've often termed it when I describe your work to other people as helping people think about um, proactively doing things so they don't have to do philanthropy on the back end to make up for all the shitty things that they've done in the process. So uh, can you describe the process that one that helped you think about strategizing that way and how that looks um if there are any examples that you're able to share yeah my team will tell you you know the thing i probably say the most to them is a reminder about what our work actually is the work of societal change whether that change is revolutionary or reformist the work of organizational change management the work of corporate social responsibility the work of philanthropy requires us first to remember and to center the fact that we are dealing with humans as we take on the opportunity to be humane, that we are holding people as they thrash into understanding the people they did not know they were not choosing. We're holding people. Our job is, and my work is very much about introducing people to people, absent their biases, absent their harms, absent their traumas to really just boil it all down to, do you understand what a human being is? Now, do you believe that they have a right to breath? Now, what responsibility do you have to encouraging that, creating that, and sustaining that breath? That is the work of justice. What responsibility do you have to me? I didn't say whether you like me or not. That's what responsibility do you have to me? And what responsibility do I have to you? Some people would say none. That's fine, declare it and we will build around you. As for me and my house, we believe that this is one world in shambles, a flame full of love. We are holding people as they thrash into learning about the people they didn't know they weren't choosing. That is the work of a DEI practitioner. Now my work is more broad than DEI. DEI is the catchphrase and the wave that the world has taken on. It is simply the institutionalized vocabulary for the work of institutional justice seeking. But many institutions that approach DEI would never approach the work of justice if they actually understood what justice required. That is why it's often very difficult to have a sustainable DEI strategy that moves beyond the pace of white fragility or male fragility or cisgender heterosexual folks fragility. It's, it's hard to get traction beyond the pace of the fragilities of people who already have power. But the DEI practitioner's job is to be the pace setter and the vision caster for a better world within their institution. That can manifest in different ways. CSR is something that I think, you know, corporate social responsibility as a like proper noun is an older relic of the work of institutional organizational design. And it's primarily like charity. It's like corporate charity. Philanthropy is just institutional charity. Like you said, man, I'm not a big fan of, of philanthropy. I think most folks in the philanthropic community, I'm partners and friends with a ton of them. They know that my life goal is to get more people to stop thinking about giving back and to start thinking about not taking first. That is a hard goal of mine. I don't want, and I don't believe it's, it's, it's societally sustainable 
for us to build costs be damned, including human costs, and, and then be celebrated at the end of it because we gave away a percentage of it. Pirates cannot be philanthropists. Hard stop. You can't pirate entire communities and then put your name on a school, wait a generation until the kids forgot, and then be celebrated because now you're on the board of the nonprofit of the place you vote against when you go back home 10 miles away. Like that, that entire cycle of, of community is, is, is incredibly toxic and very damaging. And it often moves under the radar. And that is what we are fighting against. <laughs> that is, you know, to, to, to confront that is to say, how do we reform the philanthropic community? How do we get them to increase their annual spend from the government mandated 5% of their total corpus up to 8%, right? Like that's a reformist reform that's really important. We are going to clap for that. We're also going to couch that through the lens of that's not actually doing what Dr. King said in terms of ensuring that the philanthropist understands the underlying causes that created the need for philanthropy. <laughs> you know, if your family foundation is just a pet project to keep the kids happy and to, to do to do projects together, that has nothing to do with the work of social inequity that, you know, that you've got to center the margins in your thinking and in your design. But to, to sum this up, because I've been long winded, I'm not the DEI guy in my mind. I think I'm the DEI guy in a lot of people's minds. But I think that's because the limits of social impact in the minds of many people is constrained just to diversity, equity, inclusion, when to me, it's so much more abundant. There's so much more you could ask me about. There's so much more life to give and live. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're invited to be long-winded. This is a podcast and you've already dropped so many things. I'm curious if there is an example that comes to mind uh, that you're able to share about how you've helped people think deeper about these issues of justice and equity beyond like, let's diversify our staff, right? Let's make this a queer friendly work environment. You know, the transformation's individual and it's organizational, right? On the individual level, I think, you know, I was, I was thinking about there's this, this one woman, I won't, I won't say her name. She was one of our earliest clients, man. And it's, it's very rare for me to work with an executive leader of an organization who I, I, I can tell actually trusts me, trust my team, like they actually trust me. And they engage what, when we teach about how to engage the heart work of DEI, we talk about this, this, this thing called constructive doubt, which is to say that I will doubt myself in the face of your pain. I will doubt myself in the face of your testimony because me believing what I think may actually erase you. And so temporarily, I will doubt myself to hold space for you to inform me. And that's really the first step to creating community with people of difference. It's engaging a level of constructive doubt where doubt actually pays off where you decenter yourself. And this woman, you know, she was a, a, a white woman and, and she was the executive in charge of this, this nonprofit. And man, I challenged her on so many things. I remember even, even the, the, the programs that they were running, they were, you know, everybody's talking about earned income strategies for nonprofits. How do we, you know, work yourself out of a job? That's what we need the nonprofits to do. Work yourselves out of a job. And I keep telling the business folks, then stop sending them clients. <laughs> like, like clean up your stuff and we won't need a cleanup crew because that's what nonprofits often are. They're the cleanup crew for the for-profit sector and for government. Man, she shut down an entire program that was delivering quite a bit of revenue for them. They were getting called out by specifically the Latinx community here in Chicago 
about what they were doing and like training people in, in, in white companies about DEI and about social injustice, but they didn't really focus on it. They didn't really believe it. They didn't really act on it. They didn't even look like it. And when I confronted her about it myself, I usually get a lot of pushback when I start talking about bottom line changes. Like I'm like, Hey, you got to, you got to change something that's going to affect your money. <laughs> and I'm so accustomed to being shot down. Like, Oh, we'll, 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 we'll look at this next year. You know, we'll, we'll try something a little bit later. She, she went with it. She went with it quickly as well. She shut the program down within 30 days. You know, on the other side of things, it's, it's, you know, that's a, that's an organizational individual thing. But when you look at whole organizations that change the way they do their work, you know, that's where I get really excited. We work with the African-American Alliance of CDFI CEOs, which is the, the nation's first ever association just for CDFIs, which are community development financial institutions. Those are like nonprofit banks. Justice Informed came in and we were charged with creating that table, creating their mission, supporting the launch of the institution and bringing in uh, a lot of their first 30 or so members. Being able to do work like that, that fundamentally transforms the, the level of agency that Black people have, even at the congressional level, when we saw the payroll protection program come up and we already had a bench organized of Black bank executives who were deeply resonant in their communities and by the bylaws of their organization required to act in the best interest, not of any shareholders afar, but of the people who actually lived within the low to moderate income zip codes where the banks resided. They were able to go in and get that second iteration of PPP rearranged so that they actually had a deeper investment and a broader net for black and brown businesses to apply. Because y'all, if y'all may remember that first PPP round, 90, I think it was 91 or 94% of all the money went to white owned businesses across the US. That second round was very different. And that's because there was a bench of ready people who looked like and were responsive to people of color to advocate at the executive level for that. But man, getting involved in that kind of stuff has really been the fruit of, of and the harvest of my work that just brings me joy, man. That also is an example of infrastructure that I think is important to build versus just initiatives. Yeah, for sure. I'm thinking about the importance of like from jump, having this lens in place, right? And there are lots of folks who are already going about their lives, working within the systems, capitalism, uh, racism, cis patriarchy, right? And, you know, those things have been constructed, right? And making the change is harder often than starting from this lens of justice from jump. Uh, you started a company called Justice Informed, and inherent to that, you have to be a model for what this looks like. Um, you know, you know, you are you know five years into this. How have you thought about bringing this lens into your own practice, and what does that look like? Well, we'll be starting our fifth year in just over a month. Um, don't don't give me too many more years, <laughs> man. It's a lot. It's a lot to try to not become what we're called to replace. It's a lot of work to not take the shortcuts. I've had to be very patient in our hiring practices. You know, I've had to to shoulder a lot of the work myself before I even hired our first full time person. You know, I went years before I hired a full time person because I knew I couldn't sustainably provide a living wage. And I was insistent that we wouldn't, as I've said to other companies, if you cannot offer a living wage to your people, you do not have the right to exist as a company. Hard stop, hard stop. That is a standard for humanity that I believe in. 
but it's also one that I would have to ascribe to, which I have lived the experience of how hard that can be when other companies and other systems don't also engage that type of thinking. You know, it really does take the collective to change things. What it means to build justice informed, you, you have to be super patient, man. It's the little things that get you caught up. Like, you know, the vendors that we use sometimes are like small startups or like little black owned firms or brown owned firms, women owned firms. And they don't always have the capacity and, and capabilities, even just like technologically, like the amount of <laughs> fights I had with our first accountant, because like we bank at a CDFI, at a community bank, right? Like everything I'm talking about around like how important community banks are and how important CDFIs are to the stability of black and brown Asian communities and low to moderate income communities. I have to back up and I want to back up. But I also recognize that like our banks, self-help federal credit union, Seaway Financial here in Chicago, one of the last black owned banks, they actually just got bought up because they went insolvent. They're so small, but they're still predominantly now black staffed and black serving. They, they don't have what Chase has. <laughs> like, like it doesn't just like their, their, their APIs don't mesh seamlessly with QuickBooks. <laughs> like, like, and so it makes my accountant's job harder and it costs me more <laughs> like per hour. You know, those little things, but for self-help, as I told, I remember telling the branch manager, I was like, hey, our business is going to grow. Your bank is going to grow. When he came up and I remember Rudy was the guy in Little Village and he was just like, yeah, man, like 80% of our of our investable assets goes in, into mortgages. And I was like, well, who gets those mortgages? And he was like, the vast majority of them are people on ITINs. You know, people who are undocumented or who have undocumented people living with them. It's people who are low to moderate in income, these sorts of families. And I'm like, our money's going with you. You know, we're on track to have our first million dollar year this year. And it, it's it. I love the fact that all of that, all of that is going into a bank that is in a community like the one I live in. I love that. When I go into that bank and I see Miss Aura, who's got the same name like my grandma, Eudora, and like just that personal feel like it, it's community, man. But I, I know why a lot of people don't take the justice informed approach, right? They don't they don't inform their practices through the lens of what is justice, what is mine to do in the world, not what is the best practice or what is like the easy route or what is the fastest way because I'm small, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't have all the money to be spending on these things. I would say that's for every entrepreneur to decide, but there are standards in this work. There are standards in this work. It's hard for me to think about, like going back to hiring, like, you know, we have a one to five compensation ratio max where no person in this company can make more than five times the lowest paid worker. One of the best performing social enterprises in the world has a one to nine ratio. The average corporation in the Fortune 500, it's like 20, 30, 40x plus. Some of them are 200x. We have a one to five. You can imagine what that means when the DEI sector is so hot right now and jobs, like you can come in with one year of experience, make $100,000. When Justice Inform comes in and, and, and I'm like, hey, the salary cap, the salary cap on this is five times the lowest paid person here. Our starting salaries for the for the lowest paid worker at Justice Form is 40K plus great benefits, which means the highest salary we'll pay here is 200. Your average chief diversity officer in Chicagoland makes around 250 to 275, which means I can't even attract them to come in as partners <laughs> unless they're willing to say I stand in class solidarity with people I may not even know.
that's tough. <laughs> that's tough, man. It makes hiring hard. But I, I believe that the example is important. And seeing where we're at right now, I believe that the effect, meaning our growing success, is proof positive that you can be a compassionate and considerate, community-minded and community-engaged company that stands in solidarity with the issues and people who are most affected by acts of injustice, whether they be economic, social, or otherwise. And you can build your company like that. Yeah. And this is just me talking, asking you, because this is often what so many of our conversations are about. When you think about the idea of like every entrepreneur has to make that choice for themselves based off of the communities that they're in, based off their uh, circumstances. One of the things that's striking for me is like, you know, your work um, requires slowness, it requires relationship. We can do things faster, quote unquote, faster when we don't move with that much intention. And you can make an argument that we have more impact on the very urgent issues that we're facing today. Why have you taken this slower approach where you're not able to have as wide of a reach as you might if you were making different choices about the intentions and the relationships? Yeah, you're hitting on something important there. <laughs> you, you limit your breadth when you focus on depth, at least temporarily. And we have definitely sacrificed our reach. I know that. The conversation I'm having right now with one of our senior strategists is all about how do we, how do we now, now that I feel that we have a solid base, we have a solid understanding of our culture, we have practices that we believe in, we have a team that knows and loves one another, we have clients who understand what our service offerings are, we have an operational base where, you know, our controls are, in, are more or less in place. I'm still finishing that work. Now it's time to, to really go up and out. We sit within the privilege of a sector that has a higher or unit value for one thing that we sell, the consulting space. Like I don't sell bubble gum. I don't sell eyeglasses for $200. Our contracts are larger than that, but they're also very complex and they take a long time to deliver. That creates some of the nuances of my sector that then I look at and I say, so then what is the justice informed approach to that? Right. Like that's for every sector, every group. And I can imagine some folks are probably listening. They're like, yo, I got a I got a, a restaurant living with like, what are you talking like? I would like to. But at nine ninety nine a burger, um, like, like no, nah, man, no, nah, that's that's very privileged of you. I can imagine that I would say to that the same thing, man. You got to decide where and how justice informs your approach as an entrepreneur. You have to decide. You can say that it shouldn't. You can say that. It won't, but you can't say that it can't. You have to decide whether this will inform you. This year, man, we are going after the scale. <laughs> this year, we're finally, we're finally, as I told the team last week when I got back uh, from my break, I was like, this is now about understanding what is our flair and where do we shoot it into the sky so that everyone can see. Now is the time to shoot our flare up where we say it's possible. If you don't believe it, watch, look, here it is. You can't say it's not possible. You can simply say you won't do it. And I don't think that's just for entrepreneurs, right? Thinking about people within, well, one, just like your everyday relationships, um, but also if you're in your role as whatever thing you do as your job, whether that is a staff level, manager level, executive level, right? There are choices that you as individuals get to make that are justice informed or not. Um, or, um, you know, you can decide to operate as 
business model, making those reforms that you've, you've talked about. Um, you know, we're coming to the questions that uh, everyone answers. And I'm curious if there's something in our conversation that we haven't covered that you wish others in this DEI space would know. Yeah, I think DEI practitioners are really important. I also think that uh, I just think our sector is so disorganized right now. You know, we how many DEI summits have there been, right? <laughs> like, like how many conferences and, and that sort of thing? They're, they're all over the place. When I look at what happened last year, when I look at what happened in 2020 after George Floyd was killed and our sector became the hot sector for all the wrong reasons in so many wrong ways. I look at the people who've been here in this sector, myself included, as responsible in many ways for what we saw, which was, I mean, certificate programs popping up everywhere. Everybody's got a, you know, $47 six week program for DEI mastery. Get your certificate. Every college that is currently not even activating powerfully on DEI is now selling DEI classes, you know, get certified and this and that. And you know, the people who are just creating these like weekend summits with catchphrases that they've heard on some medium post. If you're listening to this and you are someone who considers themselves a serious practitioner of social change and unpacking and unbounding the work of the human heart, that violent, beautiful place called the human heart, then it is our job to establish standards for this sector. It is our responsibility to make it so that people who are not in this work all day, day in and day out, can see through the fog of all of these random, unbounded, like diluted offerings that are out here. Um, there's no one major player in this sector. Like there's no name the social impact consulting firm in America. I'll wait. <laughs> like, like, no one. Yeah, like there isn't one. There isn't one. This is a community of practitioners, some single owner operators, some small firms like JI. Some of them are like the big ones where like Deloitte and McKinsey, you see them opening up multi, multi-million or billion dollars. Right, right. Wings. But there's no one player here. There's no one provider here, which means that we need to be very clear that we can say there's different ways to do DEI. But underneath that, what we're saying is there's different ways to restore and create humanity. And I just don't think there are that many different ways. I think it is what it is. Well, to your point about definitions of what this work is, I think there's there are people who are doing this work to restore and help people remember their own humanity, the humanity of others, and treat each other accordingly. Like with the restorative justice lens, like, hey, we're all interconnected, building, maintaining, repairing relationships, right? Um, there is also this like corporate compliance history of this industry that still exists, and those things are in direct tension. <laughs> Yeah. And, but often they're being pushed by people who are people of color, people who identify as women, people who are LGBTQ and senior level, highly paid six figure jobs who are ensuring that the business case for diversity becomes the conversation about equity, which I just don't see how that can ever, that just, that, that doesn't mix, you know, like, like, you know, the, the, the whole notion of that business case, the whole notion of like, you know, being able to upskill in, in 14 hours, like there's this one per 20,000 people went through a free 14 hour DEI mastery program. 25, like they're going to show up to Justice Inform with their resumes, like with their little, with their certificate, like I can combat white supremacy. And I'm like, y'all, just because you see the jobs out there, like, please, please. It's like, you know, it's almost like parenting, like, yo, like we're dealing with life here. 
And I almost wished it was like the field of medicine where, you know, medicine is like, you got to go through some training here. Like you're dealing with life. I don't think a lot of DEI practitioners see that. I don't think that they believe that, that they're dealing with human lives here. And it is serious and it is urgent and you have to be careful. One of the things we say every time to our clients, we don't open wounds that we can't close. We are very clear with our clients that the moment you start talking about equity, you are increasing the expectation of people who need it. The moment that you go in to mediate a, a workplace crisis where there's a crisis of trust or culture or otherwise, you're opening wounds. And if you don't know how to actually close those wounds, you should put the scalpel down. Your 14-hour certificate, your time. The, my skin color does not necessarily give me the, the skills to go in and, 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 and engage in corporate change management around racial equity, just because I'm Black. Just because I'm male doesn't mean that I'm equipped and skillful at, at, at doing very complex work. And I think that right now there's, there is so much of, of that going on. It concerns me, man. It just really concerns me. I, I, I really think that we as a sector need to come together around standards and definitions around what our praxis is, what preparation is for this work, and what demonstration of excellence actually means. You know, we have folks um, share their DNI confessions here on this space. And these are things that uh, we've, uh, like, either as a facilitator, as a growing business owner, or just as a person who's navigating this work, you have uh, either made a mistake in, uh, an embarrassing moment, uh, something that you used to do that now you do differently. Um, is there one of those that you have to share? <laughs> Come on, man. You know what? It's not, it's not embarrassing, but it's something I was thinking about a lot when I, I took a couple of weeks off. I was thinking about a lot that I, I remember or like my first year when I started doing facilitation, because originally all I was doing was like assessments and audits, like DEI assessments and audits. And then I expanded into like service offerings for trainings and these things. And then now we do full on series and programs and all that for, for big companies and small organizations. But something that I had learned in the organizing space that I realized I forgot and I realized I forgot it when I saw some exit surveys from some of our trainings when we first started doing it. And it was how important celebration is. Mm. Like I forgot, I, I, I was so focused on like, you got to get this. <laughs> you got to learn, you going to learn today. Like I was so focused on that. I was so fist up, mind open, open that heart. <laughs> you know, like I was like a drill sergeant for justice, which is not, that's not even like when you when you read some of the literature of the greats, like, I mean, read the book on love by Bell Hooks and you'll learn why celebration is important in the midst of revolution. I forgot that. And it was it wasn't really until I saw exit surveys about like people were like, yeah, man, this was this was great. And I'm like so overwhelmed and tired and I feel beat up. And it's like, <laughs> like what? Well, I hope there's something good in the world still. <laughs> I was like, I think we're missing. I missed something big here. I really missed something big here. So it's something that I've started to, I have to keep reminding myself though, because even in the last year, since, you know, 2020 happened, I forgot it again, man. I forgot it again. I, I took it out of my practice. I didn't insist on it with my team. I didn't look for it in our training decks. I didn't think about it in our contracts. I didn't acknowledge it in, in when we were having one-on-ones with our clients. Like, yo, what are we celebrating here? Yeah. If I was to 
take your confession and turn that into mine. And I, it's hard for me to believe that I'm going to put this out on airwaves, right? I'm not someone, you know, who is incredibly, oh, no, I won't say this. I'm, I'm not, I was going to say, I'm not someone who is incredibly in touch with my feelings. I am. I just don't outwardly display them, right? Because I don't want to get too high, too low, give anything, any credence. Because like when you're talking about getting those evaluations back from Amplifier J workshops and people like, this is articulating things that I've never been able to put language to before. And I'm just like, yeah, cool. That's what I do. <laughs> you know, like it's shutting me off to, you know, the, the human experience that other people are having um, that can be life-changing. It also protects me from negative feedback, right? I, I can't care about what other people say. Like, I just care about the work. And I think that there there's harm there. And that's something for me to examine um, because, you know, I'm only 30 years old. I've got a long time to be doing this work. How can you endure without finding joy in the work? Joy often comes when you consider what needs to be celebrated, not just what needs to be done. Like, where are we making progress? What's dope about us? You know? Yeah. And we are both dope. Um, you've already answered it mostly. So just really quickly, um, is diversity and inclusion revolution or reform? Reform. 95% reform. Even the practitioners would need to deeply study more revolutionary practices to infuse that that lens of, of I'll just say instead of revolution, like infusing a, a root cause focused strategy to DEI strategies. DEI as it exists right now is not terribly root focused as I've seen it across the sector. For sure. And, you know, the, the scale of reformist reforms, revolutionary reforms, all of those things, uh, you know, if you need to a refresher on those, rewind about 20, 30 minutes. Um, and then finally, uh, thank you so much for your time, your wisdom, your stories. It's always great for me to be in space and conversation with you. Where can people support you and your work in the ways that you want to be supported? Yeah. Well, first off, thank you so much for having me. It's always good to be in, in space and conversation with you. If you want to support the work, really, it's either through referral or hitting us up. If you uh, want us to come into your organization, you can go to justiceinformed.com. Also, I've got a personal site, xaviarami.com. There is a lot of like <laughs> ramblings and mumblings and stumblings of, that I've done online. So if you want to check that out, you can literally just Google Xavier Ramey Chicago and you'll get a ton of like keynotes and podcasts and, and videos and all that kind of stuff about various different intersectional points of equity and social change and organizations and societies and such. And the LinkedIn uh, ramblings. The oh, Facebook the LinkedIn ramblings, ramblings man. Oh, it's, I, so. I personally tune into the Instagram stories for inspiration as well. I was going to say Instagram is really where I'm at. I mean, Professor X is my handle. Professor and then ECKS, not the letter X. Professor ECKS. And we'll have all of those linked in the show notes. Uh, thank you so much, Xavier. Uh, it's wonderful to uh, have been able to learn from you here in this space. And y'all um, go connect with the man. Sure. Thanks, man. All right. So first of all, I just want to give a huge thank you to Xavier for gifting us with so much wisdom in that conversation that you and Xavier had together, David. I, I don't know if it was because I was just listening to you where I could take soak it all in so much out of the conversation. I have so many notes that I'm excited to debrief with you. So before doing that, though, David, what were some of the main highlights for you in the conversation that you had with Xavier? 
Well, for me, I, I've known Xavier for a minute. And so just getting to connect interpersonally was great. Some of the things that didn't re- get recorded or as in-depth, we were talking a little bit about the rest and recharge that is needed to do this work as entrepreneurs doing justice work. And so that was really important, but you didn't get to hear all of that. Outside of that, one of the biggest uh, takeaways for me was this idea of reformist reforms or revolutionary reforms. Like we've talked about this dichotomy between diversity and inclusion being a revolutionary act or a reform. And, you know, we haven't quite shared our views on that, but I don't think that it's that easy of a binary. And the way that he laid that out was really impactful for me. Yeah, I was going to say the way that Xavier kind of unpacked revolution and reform, the definition that he used was really clarifying for me. And I love how he talks about how revolution is really about the underlying causes and addressing that. And as I was listening to you and Xavier talk, it actually reminded me of a Angela Davis definition that I love and really use to ground my work, where Angela Davis defines uh, radical as simply grasping at the roots. And part of that is that we all need to be radical in this sense, because otherwise, as Xavier said in your conversation, um, we're really just doing reformist reform and attending to the effects rather than the causes. So there's a lot of D&I that feels like we are attending to the effects and the symptoms and the manifestations rather than the root causes and conditions that are creating those effects and symptoms. So I really appreciate that. And, you know, I think here's my D&I confession for this is that I used to be a huge reformist. I, I loved reform back in my heyday because I was in the education policy reform space. I was in the juvenile justice or juvenile legal reform space. Everything was about reform, but I really appreciated how he kind of broke down reform as continuing harm for some time to minimize the fragility of those who are in power, right? Whether it is white fragility or another type of fragility. And there's there's this incrementality that upholds harmful dynamics of power. So that really stood out to me. And I know we, you and I have not talked about what we think in terms of whether D&I is revolution or reform yet. But based on that, I am screaming reform a little bit just for this podcast because I do, I agree with you. I don't think it's so black and white and binary. But has anything shifted for you in terms of thinking about revolution and reform based on that conversation with Xavier? Well, I mean, I think the way that he laid out the definitions of of reform reminded me of the framework of harm reduction. And I think like... I want to highlight that we're not saying that reforms in and of themselves, even reformist reforms in and of themselves, aren't wholesale negative or bad. Like in a lot of ways, they can be net positive. But if that's where we're staying, if we don't progress beyond those things, we are just doing window dressing on uh, systems of oppression. We're not, like you were saying, getting to the root. So that can't be the place where we stop. Even though those things might be beneficial for people in the interim, you stepping on my neck with a steel-toed boot instead of, you know, spikes, you know, you're still stepping on my neck, right? So how can we make sure that we remove the, the, the boot off of people's proverbial necks? Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great um, and quite painful <laughs> metaphor that you use, but the point is clearly taken. I do have a question for you, David, as a restorative justice practitioner and the work that you do, because I know the anchor and foundation of so much of um, the work that you do is about dismantling the characteristics of white supremacy culture, or at least like naming and addressing them and really going from there in terms of thinking about restorative justice and, you know, thinking about the sense of urgency, which is one of the white supremacist characteristics and then also reform as incrementality or like kind of doing things little by little at a pace that feels good for those who are in power um i i think there's a tension for me because i personally have a massive sense of urgency when it comes to justice work i'm constantly like wanting to push but also knowing that sense of urgency can be harmful can be performative can actually cause more harm and at the same time where my tension lies is that patience also feels like a privilege right like part of true change is about making sure that it is sustainable and generative and that can take time where there is relationship building and trust building. So how do you kind of think about the sense of urgency with change that sometimes takes a long time, right? Like, so kind of that question around reform and incrementality, like how do you kind of balance those? Yeah, I think that white supremacy has, and the colonial project is still actively happening and has been for four or five hundred years on this continent, right? And all of us who are listening to this podcast, I imagine, grew up in a context where white supremacy, patriarchy, the heteropatriarchy, and capitalism are part of the fabrics of your everyday lives. And so that doesn't go away overnight. However, like Xavier was talking about, you know, Everybody, when we were talking about like being a justice-informed entrepreneur and the way that he's built his company, there are things that he's done that have caused the growth of justice-informed to be deeper and slower, not as wide. And everybody gets to make that choice for themselves, whether you're an entrepreneur or not, whether you're a manager or in leadership or a director or somebody who is staff level or somebody who's just living life within the context of relationships where there are power dynamics at play, you get to make those choices. And those little choices are change one way or another, right? Are you making choices towards justice or are you making choices that are upholding the status quo? And I don't think that it's possible to make 100% choices that are towards justice that are revolutionary every single moment. I, I don't think that's possible. And I'll reframe that as like, I know that I don't do that. I, I know I don't do that wholesale. I am an active participant in capitalism, very, very much so. And in some ways, uh, patriarchy, which I am still continuing to work on. And there's privilege in that, right? Because I benefit from some of those things. I don't think that should paralyze anybody from continuing to make the next best choice, right? We can always make a choice that is going to improve you know who we are and work towards equity for injustice for people who we have the ability to impact some of us have uh, a bigger scope of impact than others but you know that's what comes to mind thank you for that i actually really appreciate your response and your honesty because i do think that we are all complicit in a lot of ways and we're you know, trying to do our best out here. One thing that actually came to mind right now as you were talking is that part of what Xavier mentioned that I really like 
heard for the first time, even though I've been a diversity practitioner or been in roles as a diversity practitioner, is that he said that the role of a DEI practitioner is to set the pace, right? Are we moving at the pace of fragility and privilege or at a pace that centers those most impacted by, you know, safety, by material conditions, by, you know, various relationships that may be harmful or not? And I think the other thing that I wanted to lift up here is that in the conversation that you two had, I just really feel so grateful of how human-centered it was and where Xavier really came into it with a lot of just looking at like what does it mean to hold each other as people. I think that's often lost in DEI work, which you and I have talked about because restorative justice and healing justice is so much focused on relationships and really thinking about the collective in terms of how we heal, how we are responsible for each other. So that's something that really stood out to me as well. This whole idea of, you know, restorative and healing justice being about people, being interconnected, right, from from my perspective. When we think about change and changes towards justice and equity, they are change on its own. Like if I can think about like, you know, my healthy eating habits or my screen time habits, right? Those are hard things for me, a human, to to break and these changes for folks who are have been operating in systems of oppression and have either been hurt or cause harm by upholding these systems of oppression like th- those are difficult changes for people to make and so how can we hold people through those processes of change how can we provide space for people to learn and part of learning is messing up and you know making room for those mistakes to be acknowledged and people being able to make corrections but also it, doing it in a way that acknowledges their full humanity. This can get into a conversation about cancel culture, which, you know, we don't have time for right now. <laughs> but there there are a lot of different things that centering of humanity will help us as we, you know, set paces and invite people into this work. As you're talking, I, I think one other, there's so many things that stood out to me. So I will say this and maybe one more thing. <laughs> and one thing that just really kind of sh- lifted up to the surface as you were talking, David, is holding people. And I like that Xavier's question is more around what responsibility do we have for each other, which he he's like, this has nothing to do with whether or not we like each other. And I think that part of the work that we do as facilitators and practitioners is that we are in some ways responsible for each other and holding each other. But it doesn't mean that we have to like each other, right? Like, And I think that's something that you and I have talked offline about in terms of like what responsibilities do organizations and companies have for their employees and their staff and really thinking about all of their staff and not just the people who are at the table or sitting around the table. So for me, like I think that's a really helpful way to shift around the responsibility for each other versus liking each other. Anything else that you want to lift up before we wrap up for today's episode? Really just that part of the conversation that y'all didn't get to hear about making space for rest and recharging, knowing the difference between those two, right? Rest isn't always the thing that recharges you. And there are other activities that aren't necessarily what we could traditionally consider as rest that do recharge us in this work because you know we're we're in this for the long haul so just encouragement for everybody to to find those activities and do them yes yes and then the quote that i did want to end on from xavier because i just cannot get enough of it is that he said if we can design for injustice we can design for justice so let's all go out there and design some justice you all 
Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another episode next time. We'd also love to hear from you. Is DNDI revolution or reform? Send us your thoughts and juicy DEI confessions as a voice memo or text to revolutionorreform at gmail.com. Make sure you're subscribed on whatever platform you're listening on right now so you don't miss an episode. And while you're at it, leave us a rating or review and share this with a friend, old school, or you know, with Karen at work. Later, y'all. Bye.